Hey guys, this is me. Did you move today? A tu bouge aujourd'hui? J'attemechiste oji. Ivoste moviste ora. Welcome to a Did You Move Today podcast. I'm your host, Andrea, and I'm very excited to be here. In this episode, I have Dr. Linda Bluestein as my guest. She's a former ballet dancer, integrative medicine physician, and board certified anesthesiologist. She has a special interest in treating and educating dancers, gymnasts, acrobatic artists, and other athletes at increased risk of hypermobility disorders, and is the founder and host of the podcast Bendy Bodies with a Hypermobility MD. This popular podcast covers a wide range of topics related to joint hypermobility and hypermobility disorders and includes interviews with specialists with diverse areas of expertise. Dr. Bluestein also founded and is a former co-host of the podcast Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast to focus exclusively on issues related to hypermobility disorders and is a contributing author for the book Disjointed, a book about hypermobile EDS HSD coming out in early 2020. Through her private practice, Wisconsin Integrative Pain Specialist, Dr. Bluestein has helped people from all over the country live better lives, especially dancers and those with hypermobility syndromes. As a leading specialist in connective tissue disorders such as EDS, she helped to create the first online EDS continuing medical education program. Dr. Bluestein, a highly sought after international and invited speaker, is at the forefront of research on pain, hypermobility, and dance medicine. She completed her anesthesiology residency at the Mayo Graduate School of Medicine after receiving her medical degree from the University of California, Los Angeles School of Medicine, and is a member of the International Association for Dance Medicine and Science, the Performing Arts Medicine Association, and the Resources Committee for the Dance Health Alliance of Canada. She has written and lectured extensively on the topics of pain neuroscience, chronic pain, and hypermobility disorders. Dr. Bluestein repeatedly received top reviews from medical students for her teaching abilities and is a member of the clinical faculty at the Medical College of Wisconsin, Central Wisconsin, where she also serves as the course director for the Rishi Healers Art Program. More information about Dr. Bluestein can be found on her website, hypermobilitymd.com. So without further ado, let's get started. Hi, doctors. Thank you very much for being here. Can you hear me well? Yes, I can hear you very well. Great. So I would like to start with my first question. If you can tell me about yourself. So I am a former ballet dancer, and uh, I then went to uh, medical school and uh, then trained as an anesthesiologist when my, my body started uh, telling me in my mid to late teens that I was, I was started having enough injuries that I realized that my dance career was not going to be my plan A anymore. So I uh, then went to medical school and then worked as an anesthesiologist for quite a few years and had some more injuries and had to come up with like a plan, you know, C or D, which mm-hmm. is what I'm doing now. I am an integrative pain physician, and I treat a lot of uh, people with hypermobility disorders. I work with a lot with dancers and other people that have these conditions that are often misunderstood and uh, misdiagnosed. So that's what I'm doing now. I really like this idea of integrative medicine. Can you tell me a little bit more about what integrative medicine is? So I, I think of it as uh, using the word integrative in actually several different contexts. So it's integrative in that we work with people who practice integrative medicine, work with a lot of different types of um, specialists. And I think we generally tend to collaborate more than some other people who might be in a more traditional type setting who 
are less likely to be um, incorporating a lot of different uh, viewpoints. So I belong to some groups that have people that are endocrinologists, allergy immunologists, hematologists, um, you know, uh, we even have a radiologist in there and all kinds of different um, perspectives are shared surrounding this population of people with hypermobility disorders that can affect multiple systems. So it's really helpful because no one person can, you know, definitely know everything that is required in order mm-hmm. to care for people with these complex conditions. So, so this is really helpful because people bring to this group their different um, you know, pers- perspective based on their training and the types of patients they see. Um, the other way in which it's integrative is any way that I approach the individual patient. And my recommendations for them are not just um, take this prescription and, you know, come back and see me in two months, but it's usually involves talking about their sleep, talking about their nutrition, talking about movement, um, you know, movement that they're doing at home, movement that they're doing outside of the home, movement um, prescriptions and therapies that we might want to be adding on to what they're doing currently. What kind of movements are they doing that are making things um, actually more problematic for, for them mm-hmm. and addressing things in a, in a very ho- holistic way, um, looking at their nutrition, looking at uh, what kind of supplements maybe we could add to the, to the picture. So it's, it's integrating also um, other modalities. So for example, like acupuncture or, you know, biofeedback um, and a lot of, a lot of different types of therapies like that. I really like this idea because yes, it is a holistic approach, but also it's scientifically based. So I really like the fact that you bring those two together uh, from what you're explaining. So that's when I, when I read more about it, I was like, wow, she's super, first of all, your CV is phenomenal. And on top (laughs) of that, like you have, you know, you're, you're everywhere. So it's, it's for me, it's uh, a pleasure to have you here on my podcast. Well, thank you. I, I really appreciate the invitation and I love what you're doing and I love the name of your podcast. Did you move today? I think it's absolutely fantastic. I think it's a, I, I try to start, a, I try to title a lot of my lectures with a question because I think that that um, really helps to, um, you know, get us to really be, be thinking about something as opposed to just feel like, you know, we're being lectured too. So I, I love that. Thank you. What are the things that come to your mind when I tell you, I'll tell you two things. The first one is mental health and dance, the mental health challenges in dance. What comes to your mind? Huge, everywhere, um, pervasive. I think that this is such an incredible problem. So as I mentioned earlier, when I was so I, I really, really, really wanted to be a professional dancer. That was my absolute plan A. And once I started getting injured, I was so depressed and I would, I would still go to class. I think they probably said that you should. And I would go to class, I would go to rehearsal and I would sit there and just cry. And nobody, nobody figured out this is really not healthy for you. And let's try to figure out while you have this time freed up, what other things could you be doing? Ultimately, that's what happened. But mm-hmm. in, in the beginning, it really, it really took, I think, a long time for, for that to, um, you know, for, for that to be, uh, changed. And, and my story is definitely not unique. You know, now I'm in the 
fabulous position of being able to talk to lots and lots of people who, you know, they were dancers, they are dancers now. And, you know, we all, anyone who has danced or done any kind of um, athletic endeavor like dance has had to deal with injuries somewhere along the way. So whether it's related to an injury or perhaps not related to an injury, I think it's extremely common for dancers to go through, um, you know, some different uh, mental health type issues. I think in general, dancers tend to be perfectionists. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, if you think about it, that's who's going to be drawn to dance. You know, who else is going to, especially classical ballet, which was my main um, area of focus, who else is going to um, sub subject themselves day after day to being, you know, nitpicked on every little, you know, correction and, um, and really, you know, uh, strive for that type of perfection and excellence. So I think that, um, you know, and, you know, somebody also then uh, telling us what to do. I think we tend to be people pleasers as dancers. Yes. We, we want to please the, the dance teacher, the, the dance coach, the studio owner, um, you know, the company director, whoever it may be. And, and we're used to actually being in that type of a dynamic where that person who is in a position of power over, over us as dancers, you know, that is our job to, to, to provide what it is that they're asking for. And it's subjective too, right? So mm-hmm. um, it's, I think that's the other thing that can make it very, very challenging as opposed to some other settings where, you know, they might ask for something specific and, you know, we can, prove or disprove if we've delivered it. Whereas in dance, we can't really prove or disprove so easily anyway, um, if we've achieved that objective. So I think, I think mental health challenges in dance are, are everywhere. And, you know, I think most of us hopefully now know about the eating disorders that are so prevalent in dance. And I think that, you know, it's so important to realize that, that those are not, it's not about the food. It is about anxiety and um, perfectionism and Mm -hmm. other things that are at the root of those problems. So we must address that. We must address the mental health issues surrounding that and and normalize it and stop blaming people for, you know, developing these, these problems. You know, we're, we're in a leotard and tights all day long. Teachers are commenting on, on our weight and, you know, I certainly went through this in, in college after initially gaining the freshman 15 or so. And um, mm-hmm. I danced all through college. I went to a conservatory style um, dance uh, program. Well, it was a University of California, Irvine. Okay. And in my, in my sophomore year, I started to lose weight and got so much praise for losing weight. I was, you know, dancing very seriously all through college got so much praise for losing weight that of course that made me lose, want to lose more weight and ended up getting, you know, to be very, very underweight. So it's really, you know, um, such a, I think it's a a combination of the the population of people who are drawn to dance being very susceptible and the, the culture in dance and the fact that for so many years and for so many uh, um, people, they're just, it's has the same attention has not been paid to this as to dancers, physical health. And even that has lagged as compared to in the sports culture, right? So we're getting better about the physical, paying attention to the physical health of dancers. Um, but hopefully now we'll, we'll be getting more attention to the mental aspects as well, mental health challenges. I'm happy you mentioned uh, perfectionism, being a perfectionist and also people pleaser, because I do think that that doesn't only happen. I mean, it happens throughout like either college, if someone is like a, a prof- as a dancer, then in a dance company, it happens the same thing. But then 
also like when that dancer decides to continue the career or shift the career in something else by bringing dance it's always like this uh perfectionism and people pleasers um mentality I guess I mean I can talk about this is anecdotal but I can talk about myself because I feel like even though I mean after dancing for a dance company where I felt like that perfectionism and like I have to do things right because whoever is in like my artistic director wants me to wants to see me thrive and like to see this uh perfect basically but then like now entering grad school I still feel that that weight sometimes you know like oh okay, I have to still be perfect. And I have to, if I make a mistake, oh my God, why did I make the mistake, especially with data science? So I'm very happy you, you mentioned this. Um, and I'm happy that there's more mental health awareness. Um, so. Yeah, yes. And I think that that's exactly what happens is we tend to carry that over to our subsequent careers. And it's so important to be talking about things like that because you, know, you think about how many people start out as, you know, uh, start out dancing in their childhood and to varying degrees will be, have dance as part of their life. And, and for a lot of people that then have a professional career as a dancer, they often though will have some other career following that. And that transition can be very challenging for a lot of people. And, and I think that we carry a lot of that over, whether it be the perfectionism or people pleasing or, or whatever, and can definitely still be uh, challenging for us. I think the other thing that's really hard is that dance is such an immersion type activity. We identify ourselves as dancers. We can often identify ourselves solely by our dance. And so when we are injured or for various other reasons, may be doing other things besides dance, or maybe we're not doing any dance at all anymore. Mm -hmm that can be a huge blow to the self-esteem and it can be very, very challenging. So I'm, I'm really glad that people like you are, you know, helping to raise awareness and helping to bring attention to these, these kinds of issues because they're, they're really, really important and affect people at different stages, you know, it can affect them one way when they're a teenager, it can affect them a different way in their twenties, a different way in their thirties. Um, and, and I think that mental health just in general in our, in our population of people, and this was even before, you know, COVID-19 happened. Yeah. I think that that mental health uh, mood disorders like, you know, so anxiety, depression um, are, are just a huge, huge uh, problem. And so I think that the more we can, as a population of people, try to become more mentally healthy, I think this will have such huge downstream effects in so many other areas of, of um, life and Oh, improve well-being overall. I would like to uh, switch gears and talk about pain. Um, sure. Because I feel that sometimes pain can be a buzzword. Um, and so I would like to know, like, how would you define pain? So so pain is, you know, the, uh, the important thing about pain is that it is, it is an experience. So the, the technical definition, which actually has been undergoing some, some revisions, um, talks about that it is, it is an unpleasant uh, sensory experience, and therefore it can only be really described by the individual who is experiencing it. And so I think that the important thing for people to, to know is that the pain experience can be greatly changed based on quite a few variables. It's, and, and the reason why, in my opinion, the reason why there is no single pill 
that works to take away pain is because pain is an experience. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not a black and white thing. So um, there's, there's really amazing data that shows that people who have high ACE scores, which are, that's adverse childhood experiences, Mm -hmm. people who have, who have had a lot of difficult, challenging things happen in childhood have much higher uh, prevalence rates of pain in adulthood. And we know that the way that the brain is wired, the way that the nervous system is wired, whether it's um, because you have PTSD, because you have anxiety, because you have depression, because you have a high ACE score, all of those things actually um, set up the brain and the nervous system to be uh, you know, at much higher risk of developing chronic or persistent pain. So we know that pain processing is very, very complex. It's not just you know, oh, here's some damage in the tissues and therefore here's the pain. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that happens in between the tissues and our perception of pain, which, which again, we have to remember always happens between the ears. That is where we perceive pain. This will go to my, it goes well with my next question. And I want to talk about stretching uh, because I know we can experience pain when we are stretching. And so I want to talk about stretching like passive stretching versus active stretching and what are your thoughts on stretching as dancers as dancers oh i'm so glad you're asking me this question because the this i think so many dancers believe that stretching is the path to greater flexibility mm-hmm. and stretching is important no question about it and stretching is is important for all of us no matter what our age Our connective tissues like to be stretched, um, but it's a question of how are you doing it, um, how long are you doing it for, and uh, what time of day are you doing it, and and that kind of thing. And so hanging out in an extreme range of motion type stretch um, or using something like a foot stretcher, you know, those foot stretchers that they they have, yeah, Um, those make me absolutely crazy. (laughs) Those make me cringe every time I see those. That kind of thing is is not going to help you that is not going to get you you know um uh, get you over your your box on your point shoe you know that that's really not the way to to get there especially in classical ballet unfortunately there are certain we're all built different ways and i do believe that people can always be working on something but there are people that are built for the amazing aesthetic for classical ballet and then there's other people who you know, they, they just don't have the range of motion of plantar flexion, plantar flexion, excuse me, of their, of their ankle, mm-hmm. um, you know, so that they can get over on their, on their toes and they could put their foot in a foot stretcher all day long. And all they're going to do is cause posterior impingement of their ankle because they're going to, um, you know, be putting the strain on a place that it doesn't belong. Mm-hmm. So we need to be very careful about those kinds of passive stretching, um, that, you know, modalities, other things that I see people doing, you know, having somebody, you know, uh, push them down between two chairs into the oversplits. Oh my Mm -hmm. gosh. I just go crazy when I see that because, you know, I think the thing that people don't realize is, you know, we have one body, our bodies are constantly turning over cells and growing new cells. But as we get, as we get older, that process happens more slowly and as we get older, we can get something called sarcopenia, which is loss of muscle mass. And so we want to treat our bodies with very, um, with kindness, with compassion. We want to be gentle. And so 
uh, stretching, that kind of passive stretching like that is not, especially sustained passive stretching, Mm -hmm. is not going to be the way to get you know, your, your leg higher in the air. I mean, it just, um, it, it just isn't. And so when I see professional dancers showing some of these things on Instagram or, you know, um, you know, YouTube or Facebook or whatever, um, it, it really just makes me so upset because I know that so many of these young dancers, you know, and understandably look up to this person, they want to be like that person, but we need to remember that each person's body is built a little bit differently What's safe for one person is not going to be safe for another person. You need to listen to your own body, respect your body. And if you're hanging out in a stretch, I've, I've given lots of talks in um, dance studios. And if you're hanging out in a stretch and you're just hanging there for, you know, 30 minutes, you're, you're not getting any benefit really from that stretch anyway. Mm-hmm. So it's just really, really important to think, what is it that I'm trying to, to stretch? What do I think I'm going to gain from this? And ideally work with somebody who really has the expertise to help you know, are you going to achieve your goals? Are you likely to achieve your goals by doing the type of stretching that you're doing? Because there's a lot more to stretching. You know, as you know, there's multiple different kinds of stretching and um, there's different ways to um, uh, mold tissues in in different capacities. And um, dance is so it's so important how you move, not just, you know, what does it look like on the outside, but what muscle are you using in order to achieve that goal? So it's, um, it's, it's a challenging time right now with people taking classes at home and, you know, they don't have the feedback oftentimes of the instructor there, you know, being able to, you know, guide them. So I'm, I'm hopeful that people will be reading a lot of the things that people are writing online about how to, how to take class from home safely and how to, you know, uh, continue to develop your, your, yourself in a way such that you don't increase your risk of injury and things. Because, you know, right now we're recording this episode while we're still, you know, under quarantine and yes. which is so challenging for dancers. So, so challenging. And I'm thinking that sometimes the instructor maybe doesn't know about this, you know, like when, like why stre- passive stretching not so beneficial to, to dancers. Oh, yes, definitely. You know, it's, it's, I don't know if this is going to change. I I imagine that eventually it will, but the way it is right now, it's very hard for a parent to know if they're taking their, I'm just going to use the example of a a child because as adults, we can get a better sense. But when they take their child to a dance studio, it's very hard for them to know how much training does this dance teacher, studio owner have versus this other person and, and what part of that is most valuable what do I want to look for? You know, we, we can make a lot, we can probably end up doing more research before we buy like a camera or something online than we do before we send our child to a dance studio where they're going to be under the influence of this instructor day after day, um, you know, potentially month after month, year after year. And that can be very, very, that can have lifelong consequences. Yeah. Now, I have a question concerning hypermobility. Um, how would you define hypermobility? And what's your favorite research so far? So hypermobility, just by itself, that word means greater than, greater than expected range of motion for a given joint. So, um, you know, there's people that can be hypermobile in just, you know, one joint or a couple of joints 
or they can be hypermobile in their fingers and toes, or they can have generalized joint hypermobility. And we know that dancers have a higher rate of hypermobility and a higher rate of hypermobility disorders because you need to have a certain amount of uh, you know, range of motion and people generally who are you know, super tight are not really going to stay in dance because it's, it's frustrating. And of course, it depends on the style of dance, the mm-hmm. age, you know, the genre and, and that kind of thing. But um, there is my favorite research so far is a study that came out uh, earlier this year looking at the professional dancers at the Houston Ballet. And they did a genetic analysis on these dancers and discovered that a, a large percentage of them had a variant of unknown significance in a gene that is related to connective tissue. And I thought this was really interesting because, you know, variants of unknown significance in genetics just means variant of unknown significance at this point in time. And everything at one point was a variant of unknown significance, but then, you know, they get, we get as literature um, builds as the research builds, we are able to uh, more define more of these things and figure out, well, what's the significance of these things. So I thought that was really, really interesting that um, I believe it was 88% of the dancers had a variant in one or more gene that's related to connective tissue. And, you know, again, we don't really know what the significance of this research is yet, but these were genes that, that are in the general population, you know, the incidence is very, very low of having an abnormality in these genes. So, so this is very, very interesting um, research. And I know you, so you are a medical doctor. You also have your own clinic. You are also a professor. You are, you you well, you're always a dancer because you, you said you were a former <laughs> ballet dancer, so I'm, you're always a dancer. Yep. I know that you're also, um, tell me if I'm making this up, but are you also a Zumba instructor? So I am a Zumba instructor, uh, technically speaking. I, I love, love, love Zumba. I just wish right. I had gotten into it at least 10 years before I did when my body was, you know, a little bit mm-hmm. uh, better able to handle it. I have a hypermobility disorder myself and it, it can be challenging. There's aqua Zumba, which is fantastic. Yes. You know, when you do it in the water, it can be easier on your joints and that kind of thing. I love Zumba. It is so much fun. I love the music. I love the camaraderie and, and all of that. And I did get certified as an instructor. I did teach um, a number of classes. I've co-led some classes. Um, you know, right now I, I am still a Zen member, which is the Zumba instructor network. Mm-hmm. Um, but my, but I have my, my membership on hold even before COVID. Um, I have it on a hold status just because mm-hmm. I, you know, currently I'm not able to teach in order to teach a class. Um, what I didn't realize when I went and got the certification is you have to, it takes a lot of repetitions in order to be able to then teach and memorize basically an hour or 45 minutes worth of material. That's a lot of material. Yeah. That's a lot of, even though the combinations are generally quite simple. And as soon as the chorus comes back on, you're going to do the same movements. And I do a lot of visualization when I had been practicing and a lot of, you know, marking basically yeah. a ton of marking. I mean, I'm not doing this full out anyway, but um, it still was challenging for me to, uh, you know, try to do this with any regularity. So yes, I'm a certified Zumba instructor, love Zumba, uh, hope to get back to it soon. <laughs> do you think, why do you think that there's more aerobic exercise research than anaerobic exercise research? Is it because it's easier to get uh, data or, or, because like I was trying to find, I was doing a literature review, trying to find 
information on uh, the benefits of, 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 of physical activity, but, but more specialized in like um, dance. Sure. And I only find, uh, I mean, there's some resistance training literature, but why do you think that there's more aerobic exercise papers, studies than? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. And I don't know if, I don't know what you think. You probably know more about this than I do. Um, but I'm wondering if part of that has to do with that it would be an easier thing to study because anaerobic mm -hmm. exercise is going to be in more uh, shorter bursts. Yep. And so I feel like that's a harder thing to study than, than aerobic exercise, which is easier to maintain. Should we explain what aerobic versus anaerobic exercise is? Yeah, definitely. And I, it okay. just came up to my mind because um, we were talking about Zumba. Zumba is like a lot of cardiovascular. So I, I was like, you know, I might as well ask the question. Sure, sure. So aerobic exercise is is when you're exercising at a at a level that you are able to utilize the oxygen that you're that you're taking in. And anaerobic exercise is when you've exceeded your capacity to use oxygen as a fuel source. Did I get that mm -hmm. correct? You again, you probably know more about that yes, than yes, I do. Yes. So okay. Yes. Okay. And that was one of the things that that when I was first not able to practice as an anesthesiologist anymore and I was trying to figure out, well, what's plan C or D going to look like? I, I did want to do like VO2 max um, testing on people, which, which I think would be, be super interesting to do in, in dancers because we know that dance is such a, you know, it, it involves so many different things. And oftentimes mm -hmm. dancers do actually end up doing something else in order to train their cardiovascular system because dance class itself, um, you know, may or may not achieve that objective as much for, for people. Yep. Yeah. So I would like to talk about your podcast because we were talking about hypermobility and I know you have two podcasts. So I want to talk about that. When do you decide to start your podcast? So I started the first podcast um, almost exactly a year ago with um, a, a, an attorney um, friend of mine. And we started that one, you know, literally made a recording at a park during a, a fundraiser for um, Ehlers-Danlos syndromes and, and related disorders. And it was, you know, hey, let's let's do this. And it was, uh, you know, it was a great learning experience. We had a lot of great guests on that on that program. Um, so I'm a founder of that podcast. It's called the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Yes. Um, I founded that with Carrie Gabrielson, who is an, an attorney living with EDS and uh, mast cell activation syndrome and other of these other, um, which, which she says on the podcast. And we did, we recorded uh, quite a few really, really good interviews. And, and I've, uh, I often refer my patients to, I say, you know what, don't pay me to tell you about this part. You go listen to this part and, you know, I don't want you to, you can listen to this for free, <laughs> <clears throat> excuse me, rather than, you know, rather than paying me to, to tell you about it. Yeah. Um, and, and it was such a great thing because, you know, I would ask people to, to come on and I, I learned a lot, you know, from these interviews. And then I, I really wanted to expand my work a lot more into the field of dance and, and also be able to, um, you know, carry a, a, a direction that I kind of had a vision of how I wanted to, to carry the podcast moving forward. Mm -hmm. And so, oh, I, a couple of months ago, maybe I started the, the Bendy Bodies podcast and um, that's called Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. And we've recorded uh, quite a few episodes. In fact, I've now recorded some, you know, basically COVID specific episodes. What I like about about the podcasts are, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm an 
I'm trained as an anesthesiologist. So I, I have a lot of training in cardiovascular, pulmonary, um, you know, uh, you know, ki- kidneys, uh, you know, all, all different parts of the body and, you know, immunology, allergy, you know, you, you kind of have to know about a lot of things as a, yeah. as an anesthesiologist and as a pain doctor, of course, I need to know about a lot of those things as well. But with the podcast, I can interview people and get information out into the world that I think is going to be valuable for this population of people with hypermobility disorders that they're at, they're at all different places in terms of their, their ability. So some might still be dancing, might be dancing at a professional level and, you know, maybe they have a little bit of hypermobility, but they don't really have a disorder because they don't have any symptoms related to it, but I don't know what they're going to look like five or 10 years from now. So if they're armed with some of this information, maybe they can prevent some of these downstream effects that some of my patients have experienced. I would like to put myself out of business by having people not need to go to somebody like me. That's my whole goal is to get that information to people so that they can help themselves and they can, you know, avoid the whole uh, process of, you know, going to a doctor, the doctor says, no, there's nothing wrong with you. You're crazy. Mm -hmm. Going to another doctor, they get told the same thing. It's really defeating. And it's happened to so many people. I have a lot of patients that have been turned away by big, institutions, uh, big institutions that have said to them, we have nothing to offer you. And that is just devastating to be told yeah. as a patient. And, and I don't believe that to be true. I have never met someone that I didn't think, here's a whole bunch of things that you can try. Let's, let's start working on these. And um, so, that's, so that's why I started the, pod, the first podcast and the second podcast was to get information out to people. I love podcasts myself. I am a mm-hmm. podcast addict. <laughs> Yes. Um, I, I love them. They're so convenient. You can, you know, you can listen when you're in your car or folding laundry or, you know, just getting ready to, to start your day. There's just so many different ways that you can absorb the information. So I feel like it's just a great tool to, um, to help people. So that's, so that's why I started the podcast and, um, and I just really enjoy doing it and it allows me to connect with people that I wouldn't otherwise get to yeah. talk to. Yeah. You're, you're, you are clearly really knowledgeable. So I'm very happy again that you said yes to, to come here and be my guest. Do you have any advice for uh, PhD students, medical students, or even dancers out there? Something that you would like to share with them? So I think that um, the most important thing would be to remember that you're going to bring your, re- your real world experience into whatever it is that you're doing and that it's not only okay, but it's desirable to combine what you love with, with what you're curious about and, and what you want to do. And, you know, I really feel like it is absolutely possible. When I, when I finished medical school, I, I wanted to work with dancers, but at that point in time, I felt like the only path to do that was to be an orthopedic surgeon. And I somehow, even though I didn't know that I had a hypermobility disorder, I somehow knew that I did not have the, the physical strength or that I wouldn't have the physical strength to, you know, set bones and, you know, uh, you know reduce joint dislocations and, and things like that. I just, you know, suspected that I wouldn't be able to do that. And I had always been interested in pharmacology and physiology. And so I chose to, to do my residency in anesthesiology. And it's so cool for me where it was devastating at first to not be able to practice anesthesia anymore, 
but now I'm getting to combine my two loves. I love medicine. I love it. It is so, it's such a fabulous field because it's, it, you're constantly learning. There's so much that you can do. There's so many people that you can help. It's, it's um, fascinating, complex. Um, you know, it's, it's uh, just al- always evolving in science. We're constantly learning new things. And to be able to combine that with my love of dance, which is, is um, it's, that's deeper than my love of medicine, to be honest. Yeah. My, my, my love of dance is just, um, you know, incredible. I, I, I want to help dancers as much as I possibly can. Um, you know, they, they are, we, we, we are a unique breed. You know, we, we definitely have so many things that we have in common. And um, so I think that it's important to realize that you can definitely combine the loves of what you, of what you want to do and to just keep an open mind to possibilities. I, I teach at the, as you mentioned earlier, I teach at a medical school mm-hmm. and I, and I sometimes in, in interacting with the medical students, they, have, they seem kind of discouraged because they feel like they only have a choice between A and B. And it's like, but have you even considered C or D, you know, there, there are other possibilities. And I know for me, when I've gone through some difficult times in my life, I wasn't able to see that either. And so I think that's another thing is sometimes taking a step back, calming the nervous system, um, you know, doing some guided imagery, or that's what ended up why, what I ended up ultimately doing. Um, Martin Rossman had some really, Dr. Martin Rossman had some really great guided imagery exercises that I went through. And they talk, they talk about talking to your um, inner, inner advisor. That's what mm-hmm. it is. And you kind of relax your nervous system enough to talk to your inner advisor. And, you know, what is it that I truly want to do? And um, so I, I think it's ex- an exciting time to be in science. Of course, now we really are realizing that ever more than, even more than ever before, right? Of course, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah. Doctor, I have two more questions for you. Um, sure. My first question is, did you move today? Uh, yes, I did. I usually uh, get up in the morning and do some of my own gentle stretching. I have had the great privilege of being in and out of physical therapy for the past 15 years. And actually, I should say I started physical therapy when I was in my teens. So I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of, lot of physical therapy. So I've had a lot of, you know, home programs prescribed to me. Um, I have a lot of different exercises that I do. I do like kind of some neural flossing type exercises. Mm-hmm. I like to do some of those when I first get up in the morning and um, I love going for walks. So I, I have done that. I've gone for a walk today. Um, I'm currently not doing Zumba. I'm doing, I was actually back in physical therapy when uh, COVID became declared as a pandemic. And so now I'm doing my physical therapy home exercises at home. So I do the, the strength ones a little bit later in the day. Um, and, and some of those are, you know, involve heel rises and things that I, you mm-hmm. know, did as a dancer. Um, so, so yes, I try to move every single day. Again, I love the title of your podcast. I think it's such an important way to, to look at it. Um, kinesiophobia, which is the fear of movement is super common with hypermobility disorders. And like many of my patients, I have injured myself doing very, very simple things, um, I have injured myself getting up off the sofa or reaching into the back seat for my purse. Um, you know, 
and it can be very easy to then be afraid to move, but moving is critically important. Um, it's absolutely necessary for our bodies to have the proper neuromuscular connections, right? And yeah. so if we want to move, we have to move. Yes. <laughs> What's movement for you? So, and that's the other thing I love about what you, what you, the way you phrase it, because the word exercise has, has different meanings for different people. So I love the way you use the word movement because movement to me is healing and movement to me is rebalancing the nervous system and bringing it back into a state of normal. It's very common for people with hypermobility disorders to have a sensitized nervous system. And what ends up happening is things that are not normally painful become painful. Things that are normally slightly painful are very painful. And in order to bring the nervous system back into balance, we must move. That is a huge part of what we need to do. Gentle stretching, like you were talking about earlier, yeah. and, and gentle movements that are appropriate for our body at that point in time are, are critically important. And, you know, exercise is a dirty word to some people, not to dancers usually, but, um, you know, sometimes people have become enough deconditioned that, that they're afraid to move. Yeah. So I think that that that's just a really important concept that we all, hopefully we can all think about our goals. What is it that we want to be able to do? I, I, I saw a movement specialist once who, um, he's not trained as a physical therapist, um, but I love how he started out by asking me, he, he trained in kinesiology and he started out by asking me, what is it that you want to be able to do that you currently can't do? And, and, and based on my answer to, the, to that question, he, you know, he kind of did a further assessment and prescribed a movement program for me to help me reach my goal. And I think that that's an important way to think about it, whether it's, you know, it's going to be different for, for each person, right? So yes. I think thinking about the goals are, and I try to do that with my patients, I ask them, what is your goal in coming to see me? And it's going to be all, all ends of the, of the spectrum for different people. So that's movement for me. It's healing. Thank you. Doctor, where can we find you online? So the best place to find me is hypermobilitymd.com is my website. And I also have, as you mentioned, a podcast called Bendy Bodies with the Hypermobility MD. And I do have a, um, an email address linked to that account, which is bendybodiespodcast at gmail.com. And I'm also on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and you can find me those places um, if you also search for Hypermobility MD. Thank you so much for your time. Again, it's been a pleasure talking to you. Um, thank you again for the, the whole idea. The goal of this podcast is to bring the arts and the science together. And you are definitely an artist. You're a scientist. You're a doctor. You're a professor. I mean, you're, you're a lot of things. So I'm very happy uh, that, I, that you gave me some time today to, to talk about uh, the things that we both like. Absolutely. Oh, I, I really appreciate the invitation. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you and so much. Absolutely. All right, guys. I hope that you enjoyed this episode. I hope that you moved today. And if you haven't, you still have a couple of hours. Thank you again, doctor. Okay. Thank you.